Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 131. In this episode, Carl and I talk to John Tobinsey about Event Hubs, Service Bus, Relay, and more. Lots of great Connect announcements. Doom is apparently the best use of the Apple Touch Bar. And Carl has a life-changing tip that will speed up browsing of your downloads folder. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics, providing tools and solutions to accelerate design, development, insights, and collaboration for any organization. This week, we have John Tobinsey, Microsoft Program Manager for the Hyperscale Compute Team, responsible for Service Bus, Event Hubs, and Relay. John has a strong background in systems integration and retail point-of-sale systems, and is even BizTalk certified. As a recent transplant to Seattle, John enjoys exploring the area and can often be found walking through the woods with his wife and six-month-old puppy. How's it going, John? Good. How are you guys doing? Good, good. So, Carl, what's going on? Yeah, so we are... Um, pretty much at the end, this episode is our last of the uh, year-long exclusive that we have with our sponsor, Infragistics. We would really like to thank them for being a great sponsor. They kind of pretty much fund everything that we do from you know not only just the nuts and bolts of hosting the show, but uh, we like to hand out a lot of swag everywhere. They, they supply all of the funds used for that. Mm-hmm. Um, since we are at the end of that, we... Uh, are looking for somebody to be a co-sponsor if Infragistics decides to go along with that. So if you are a company that's looking to do a little bit of advertising on a podcast, uh, we may have an opening. So Mm -hmm. uh, reach out to us, feedback at msdevshow.com, and uh, we can send you a little bit more details about what that would involve. That sounds great. And who do we have for the Infragistics Ultimate Winner of the Week? This week was a great one. Um, one that uh, we we actually did not uh, uh, ever think of this as a way of communicating with us, but uh, he gave us a pull request on GitHub, um, fixed uh, some uh, links that had changed. Not even that they were bad, but they're, they're bad now because uh, the links moved. So that's an Arshwerer. Uh, I'm pretty sure I got that a little bit wrong, but he, he, <laughs> he did fix some links for us, uh, uh, on GitHub. So you can check out his, uh, pull request, pull request number four, uh, for the, uh, website. And, uh, if you want to get mentioned on the show, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. Uh, we really like those five-star iTunes reviews as well as fixing our website for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, we really appreciate that. I mean, all of our stuff is in GitHub so that people can do that if they see a mistake. Um, if you see something, I'm obviously can just let us know and we'll try to fix it. But, um, you know, if you just want to fix it yourself, cause I know we have a lot of smart listeners go right ahead. Okay, so what do we got for the news here? What's the first thing? Nike self-lacing shoes can be yours for $720. <laughs> yeah, so uh, this has really been the year of uh, Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Um, they, pre- they, they predicted the World Series, the presidential election, and shoes and hoverboards. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, but yeah, I think uh, starting yesterday as we record this, it's December 2nd now, uh, you could buy these shoes for $720 through the Nike Plus app as well as in their New York City store. So um, if you really don't like tying your shoes, there's a now a solution other than Velcro. Okay. Good good gift idea. <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah. Mail us for our shoe sizes and mailing address. If- Seriously, other than celebrities, who who is really buying these? Although I guess uh, I'm, I'm always surprised. People. Yeah, I'm always surprised how much people spend on shoes. Anyway, so that's probably the least tech-related um, article that we or news that, that we have here. This next one though goes to the complete other end of the spectrum: a four-bit calculator made in cardboard and marble. I love this one. Yeah, um, and, and not only was it just made in cardboard and marble, but it kind of like preserves how you would naturally kind of represent numbers in binary form. So you write it uh, in, in marbles and binary, you kind of pull out the cardboard that's holding your representation. And as they travel down, they actually show you um, um, in this article here, you know, what an AND gate is, what an OR gate is, an XOR gate, a half adder, all of these things that we learned in computer science in physical cardboard form. Mm -hmm. So I, if you just look at all the different videos, they are pretty amazing, and uh, I highly recommend it. It gave me uh, 
probably like a half hour of fun just watching all the videos. Yeah, it, yeah look, it's really looking at those videos now. I I wouldn't have expected that to be so analog. I that was not what I was expecting when I clicked <laughs> on that link. Wow, yeah, that exactly. is pretty neat though. And Carl, I'm going to paste in the show notes here another one, which is a marble adding machine that's made in wood. That's even uh, more. It's even more clear. Uh, what is happening there? It's like very obvious how the whole thing works. And he actually shows a, a number of different, um, um, you know, addition operations that he does on there, which is just really cool. Yeah. This, you, you can start to see whenever, whenever you look at these foundations, I remember, you know, there's, there's people that, that don't go to school for something like computer science and they get in the business and, and many of them do an awesome job. Some of the smartest people, you know, di- didn't go for that. But one thing that you do get in like a computer science degree is, is you study this stuff. Um, you know, almost to kind of a, a crazy level. Cause, um, for me in school, we, we did, we did all the binary stuff. We did all the, the binary operations. And then we actually went so far as to, we had to design, uh, circuits using, um, like XOR gates, NAND gates, that type of thing. Um, and, and it would be like, you know, Hey, I need you to design this circuit using just NAND gates. Um, and, and we actually went through these exercises. Um, so if you didn't get that experience in school, um, then I, I think this is just really cool how you can see kind of the base foundation of how a computer works and then everything just builds on top of this. And then it really comes down to miniaturizing these things and, uh, and, and just building like billions of them into a processor. So it's, uh, it's very cool. Okay. So now we can go, let's go from wooden calculator to quick draw, which is machine learning in action. Yeah. Uh, this is, I believe a Google, um, experiment that, the is using neural network uh, to see if it can recognize uh, doodles. So what it, it's essentially a game. They give you six different words that you have to draw, and you have to get the their neural network to recognize it in 20 seconds each picture. Mm-hmm. And I know when that came off, uh, I think there's a lot of people in our Slack channel that um, wasted a lot of time that day <laughs> on this. So yeah, uh, you know, I'm just opening fun. this right now. It's like draw a dolphin. And some of them are, are actually pretty good. It's easy to... Um, get this along. Uh, some of them you're drawing like really, really well, and it's just not getting it. So, I, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I it's both really amazing and really like, ah, uh, why aren't you getting that? Yeah, they're 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 really cheating too because machine learning gets much easier whenever you whenever you're doing classification. Um, whenever you say that here's a list of twenty possible things, like imagine if you were playing this game in person. You know, so normally the way you play a game like this is like, you know, like Pictionary or one of those games is like somebody's drawing and it can be anything on the planet and you have to yep. figure out what it is. But, um, I, you know, I, I actually, what I'm kind of wondering is how many different types of, of images they have. If they have like 10,000 images in here, then that's pretty cool. But if they only have, you know, 30 different images, then I don't know, then this whole thing is kind of a scam because they're, they're just making their lives way easier. Because if, if you have that list ahead of time, it's pretty easy to differentiate. Cause I've drawn things where I've drawn like two lines on there and then it just, it knows what I'm talking about. And I'm like, no, I'm like a human, um, for, for better or for worse would have, would have given a different answer. They would not have picked well, that respect. Yeah, but that 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 also is like exactly how like those voice prompts when you're like on a yeah, on telephone exactly. cold work. Yeah, they're using they know that there's they they only know, they know that there's only six options that you have to say. So if if for if they let you say anything in the world, it would actually be really hard for them to match and figure that out. Yeah, a lot of times. Whereas if it knows that you're gonna say continue or operator or or you know a few f bombs or something, then um you know that uh, is a lot easier to classify when you're only expecting those things. Yeah. Yeah. So like there's a, there's a picture of pizza here, you know, they tell you to draw pizza and I, I, the experience I had, it wasn't with pizza, but I, it was just to kind of put it in simple terms. Like I drew like a V for pizza, you know, like to, to start yeah. drawing the thing. And it's like pizza. And it's like, wait a second. Like, first of all, it looks like a letter V. <laughs> if it's not a letter V, it could certainly be a traffic cone. I guess I did draw it that way. So it's using those clues. So, you know, I, I think what it shows for sure is that machine learning is insanely amazing at classification. Um, you know, that can far exceed humans in, in speed and, and, and understanding kind of a wide variety of inputs there. Um, so I think really yeah. the impressive part is just machine learning. Yeah. And, and I can't remember what they are. I mean, we obviously are hitting the nail on the head about classification right here, but I know when I talked to Seth Juarez at, um, uh, that conference this summer, he said that there are really only six things that machine learning is actually really good for and can do really well, whereas classification is one of them. So really, it's just knowing when to use each of those tools. Yeah. So it just told me to draw a wine bottle 
I drew a <laughs> bottle that did that was not even wine bottle shaped, and it said it's a wine bottle. It was one guess. It was its only guess. <laughs> I, I must be a terrible artist because I'm getting the complete opposite. I was just told to draw a belt and a cooler and I couldn't get a, either oh, that's of them. <laughs> yeah, so for the wine bottle, I guess my point is like, I drew a soda bottle and it said wine bottle. How convenient that it actually had the, the right answer. I'm guessing well, the, it doesn't ever say draw a soda bottle. The one that I've gotten several times that it never gets is truck. It's a draw a truck. And it's like, oh, that's a pickup truck. I'm like, well, yeah, it's a kind of a truck. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you so dumb? <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, machine learning is is obviously super impressive. And if you play this, I I think I think most people will get amazing results from this. And I think the the thing to get out of it for most people is just, hey, this is machine learning is here and now, and these are the types of things that um it can do fairly easily. And you should start thinking about, you know, scenarios where you can be using this. Uh, okay, let's see here. Visual Studio Tools for Azure Functions. This is really cool because in the past, if you want to do Azure Functions, you kind of had to write your code in a web browser, mm-hmm. and which is fine. But you know, if you want to add this to like source control and stuff like that, um, that got a little bit harder to version and maintain. So now there's tooling in Visual Studio for you to kind of do file new project. You can get Azure Functions as a uh, project in the cloud templates area. And it even does all the way to like publishing to your Azure function up in Azure. So you kind of get that full, that full stack of tooling that uh, you're used to with other things like uh, websites or app services. There's debugging too, which is only for C sharp right now. So that's disappointing, but. I had I actually hadn't seen this before ten seconds ago, Carl. This is really awesome because Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. So what when was this published? Is it oh oh that's I why it was, it was published like yesterday, yesterday, right? Yeah, I'm on vacation, so that's why. <laughs> um <laughs> so I've actually been doing a lot with Azure Function. We'll have to link this in the show notes, but um I created something recently that you're completely aware of, Carl. Um yes. but John, you'll you'll probably find this interesting. Uh mm-hmm. so I, I created an Azure function. So we we wanted to get our uh Libsyn. We use Libsyn as our hosting provider for the podcast for the downloads. Okay. We host that in Libsyn and they give us statistics and we can export those as like CSV, but there's no automated way of doing it. So I actually created, ah. and I put this out in GitHub. Um, I created an Azure function that went, it's a, it has an HTTP trigger. So basically when you call my special URL, um, the Azure function will actually log into Libsyn, download the CSV, transform it into a JSON, and then send that back as the, as the response to the original query. Um, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, so the reason that that is really cool is that we can actually in Power BI, we just give it the URL of the Azure function and it says, Oh, this is a live JSON stream. I will automatically refresh this for you on a regular basis and always show you the latest data. So boom, we have a magical live stream, not live, not a live stream, but we have an up to date stream of the, uh, the Libsyn data. And uh, Channel 9 actually gave us access to their database. So we're able to integrate that in. So we're able to build a, a really kick-ass uh, Power BI dashboard. Basically, has all of our statistics in one place. That so, is really cool. We uh, yeah. we have a lot of customers who are starting to use functions um, as connectors for both service bus and event hubs. And it's great yeah. for those like mid-process transformations that you need to do. We have other people implementing a lot of advanced stuff that we can talk about. Yep. So from the event hubs perspective, I actually created another. So I've, again, I've been pretty obsessed with these functions. So I created <laughs> one that goes out. It actually calls, there's, a, there's an API uh, for getting traffic data here and toll data. Um, mm-hmm. It's actually pretty extensive here in Washington, what the, the data that gives you, and it gives you back the data in uh, JSON or XML. So I actually wrote a, um, a, tr- a, a time triggered Azure function. It, ca- it runs every five minutes when it, when it runs, it goes out and it pulls the latest data from that API. Mm-hmm. It basically takes that giant JSON, actually it splits that JSON object for each one of those that creates an event hub message. Mm-hmm. And then I send those event hub messages over to stream analytics to, to um, only look at values that change. Mm-hmm. And then I take that data and I send it over to SQL database so that I can do, uh, again, Power BI on the toll data, which is pretty that's awesome. And I'll bet that's a pretty cheap solution for you too, right? Well, it costs nothing. Like they, yeah. <laughs> Azure, I don't, I don't know how they plan on making money because like the, the amount that they give you for free is ridiculous. So anybody right. listening should go out and check it out because you can probably run a lot of your, at least like your hobby stuff for sure. You can just run completely for free. Um, uh, oh, but yeah. it's incredibly useful for any type of solution. You basically pay per request. You don't keep a machine running. So it's, uh, it's super exciting. Anyway, that was a little bit of a, of a tangent. 
Um, so the last, oh, actually, before we, we're going to talk about connect in just a second, but the, the other thing we want to talk about was, um, somebody got doom running on the MacBook Pro touch bar, <laughs> which is pretty wild. Which I, I think if anything else, it's just a testament to doom and not only, you know, as a kind of cultural, you know, phenomenon, mm-hmm. you know, that everybody from our era just kind of knows and loves, but also to the code quality as well, that you can run it on so many different things. Yeah. I think the fact that it was C++ really helps with that, that portability. It's cool too, because they can just make the bottom bar run on the touch bar. So I, I did want to use this as a, as a time. So I finally, I've gotten into this Apple store to take a look at the new MacBook Pros. Um, and the touch bar is as, as silly as I was thinking it was. Um, so in, in it, in it, I don't know. It's just not, it's really weird. It's really weird. There's probably times when I would use it, but I, I think the whole thing is kind of a big gimmick. And then I even ran into issues with it. Um, so allegedly they're using like watch OS on that thing. And then they have this weird communication channel, but, um, I, I went in as an experiment. I went into the photos app and I, um, what was it they had? Okay. So in the touch bar, I could scroll through the photos using the touch bar, which already is just silly because you can use the trackpad, whatever. I did that <laughs> while keeping my hand on there. I did a, I did a resize. It let me do that. Um, and then it either broke the, t- yeah, I think the, that permanently broke the touch or I shouldn't say permanently, but that actually broke the touch bar until I picked up my finger. Like they have some weird race conditions in there where you can't even use both at the same time. Like you, you know, you're using the touch bar and then the trackpad and now the trackpad has broken the touch bar and then you have to pick up your finger to sort of reset it. I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking there. It's just really weird. Just, just add a touch screen. So, so is it, <laughs> is that something where maybe if they just fix that, that it could be better or is just kind of the whole idea just not, I don't know. Well, so the the reason that I, I know it probably seems crazy that I was doing that because a normal user probably won't do that. But the whole point was that. The only thing I'd potentially use this for, I use Lightroom or not Lightroom. I use, uh, well, I do use Lightroom, but I use um, Final Cut Pro for editing the podcast video. Um, and, and I was, you know, just like any, anytime I can get more efficient at that would be better, right? I need a new input. Really what I need is like the, the surface dial on, honestly. Um, well, and that's around. what I was going to compare it to because I've been using one for almost a month now. Yeah. And it's really nice when you want have those situations where you can do more, do more with, because you're having more inputs at the same time. Yeah. And if you, if they just kind of fix that, that's where I was wondering if that would be, you know, a way to kind of, yeah. Just, well, you've been using this just to be clear. You've been using the surface dial for a month, right? Yes. Just okay. the dial. I just thought it wasn't clear if you were talking about the MacBook pro. Cause you, yeah. No. Yeah. You're killing me with that. So, um, you know, it, so I went, I had to put my hands on this thing. And yeah, oh, you have two of them, of course. Two hollow lenses, two, of them. two dials. Do you use them both at once? <laughs> uh, you cannot pair two to one computer at this time. Gotcha. That's interesting. So, I'm just thinking like dials everywhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's raining dials. So, as expected, I was in the store, like kind of putting my my hands where I would how I would use Final Cut Pro, and you're sitting there like with this hand in front of the other one, so you're you can't you're like blocking the screen using the trackpad, and it's just. It's the whole thing. It's so awkward. I, I don't get it. Like, I, I want to believe, but I, I just, I can't, I can't, I, I, just, I don't know. Anyway, let's stop talking about that. Brings bad, back bad memories. Um, so I'm sticking with, uh, with, with the old Mac Pro because I think it's better. Um, maybe not better, but, um, it's plenty good. Um, so can, let's talk about connect announcements. There's a whole bunch of things, but we want to get through it relatively quickly. Um, are there some things that you want to call out here, Carl? Well, I think the, uh, the biggest things that we're going to be interested in is the visual studio releases. Mm -hmm. So first of all, the, uh, visual studio 2017, it's officially being called, Mm -hmm. uh, is going to be coming out next year. Um, are there any features of that in particular that you guys want to talk about? Um, of 2017? Yes. Um, well, I, the biggest thing for me is that it installs in like five minutes. The, the installer was completely rewritten. So, you know, every time I wipe my machine, it was, I was using visual studio less and less because it was, um, you know, just because of install time. And it's just this like pet that I have to care for all the time. And now with this, it's just trivial to, to install this thing. And the way that they have the scenario based installer set up, like it's just, it's so quick. So I'm not afraid of installing it anymore. So that's the, that's yeah, the biggest so- thing for me. 
I haven't yeah, played so, with that stuff at all, but is it is it because it's kind of like .NET Core and that they've pared it down and then you just add the pieces that you need? Is that why it's so small or is it uh, just... I Honestly, I don't know how they're doing it, but I, I know one thing is that it's it's isolated. So if you delete, um, you obviously will still have it in like the, in, the installed programs. But my mm-hmm. understanding is you can pretty much clean this thing off your system by just deleting that folder. So they're, I think they're ah, just... That's cool. I think they, yeah, I think they are. It is sort of componentized and they're just basically copying those components over or downloading them, whichever, whichever it is. Um, and it, it just, it makes that whole experience a million times better. Um, and and part of that too, is like during the setup, it's no longer where you get like the list of 30 options. Like, do you want the C plus plus components and the office add in? It's organized. You just say, you just say, Hey, I want to do web development or I want to do UWP development. And it just knows what it all needs from that. That's awesome. Yeah. So it is much better. Uh, the next big thing I thought was huge uh, was Visual Studio for the Mac. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. something that, that I don't think anybody saw coming, really. Yeah. Um, in reality, um, you know, some people are saying it was just uh, Xamarin Studio rebranded, and to a point it was, but they also added a lot of things. So anything mm-hmm. that you could potentially run on a Macintosh, you can now build for. So because of uh, .NET Core, you can do websites. You can now author Mac apps on there. Um, so it, while it's not the full capability set of Visual Studio, it's a version of Visual Studio that makes sense for Mac people on that are using a Mac. Yeah, so you sort of go through three phases. First, you're like, yes, Visual Studio for Mac. And then the next thing is like, oh, wait, it's just a rebranding. So you're like, oh, man. And then you're like, wait a second, there's a whole bunch of cool new stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think, I think this just shows the, the commitment to that platform. Um, I, the, the, you know, basically the Visual Studio for Mac platform, um, and adding all that functionality in there. So that's really exciting. Um, if, if that's the platform that, uh, that you, that you want to be on. Especially whenever you're doing Xamarin stuff, obviously. Uh, so it's good. It's just good to see that evolution. Um, what else do we have? One of the things that I thought was cool um, that I that I saw in here was the Visual Studio Code extension for SQL Server. Um, so and it, I I looked at that. That thing is really neat. So being able to author your uh, you know SQL scripts in there and then also execute those against a SQL Server. So even from a from a Mac. Um, or from Linux, I assume as well. Um, and then, uh, the other big thing relating to SQL Server was, uh, SQL Server for Linux is, is now, it's not GA, but it is available to, for people to, to try out. Um, and you can, there's updates for a management studio so that you can actually connect to that. Um, those are probably the big things. Also, yeah. Also, Azure DocDB has an offline emulator. So if you want to do some development and you don't oh, want to always good. hook up to the cloud, um, that's really awesome. Yeah. And Uh-oh. I think <laughs> we've, we've had people ask for that for our services. <laughs> oh, an emulator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if we'll be pressured to do that now. You almost have to, man. Yeah. <laughs> just, just go into TFS, just put that in as a feature request. It's a, it's yep. a checkbox, I think in your, in your project, it says make it available offline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> make emulator work offline. Uh, okay. So speaking of, Speaking of event hubs and all of the related services, let's let's just uh, let's just get into it. So one big thing about event hubs is that you have this this service bus umbrella that covers a lot of different services. So what what are the services that are that are under that service bus umbrella in Azure? Yeah, so we uh, we're kind of going under an identity crisis right now as far as what to name ourselves. Yeah. Um, in the past, uh, our team has been called Service Bus, and Service Bus is where all of these services came from. Uh, but essentially, we have three three different offerings. Uh, the f- uh, first one is Service Bus, which you guys probably know as you know queues and topics, what is traditional uh, Service Bus. Then there's Relay, which is technically a feature off of Service Bus, but it's really pretty much its own service. Um, and then we have Event Hubs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've kind of um, unofficially started calling ourselves the Azure messaging team because I think they all deal with messaging. Okay. And so that's that's really what our services provide. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me that they're all kind of a variety of, of messaging. Yeah, mm-hmm. every time you add a new product, right, it sort of expands what, what you guys yep. are working on. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we've got a couple things in the hopper that'll make that even more confusing in the future. So okay, great. we're gonna, hopefully going to figure <laughs> that out soon. <laughs> that's actually a good thing, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, I run into like a lot of different people who either A, know really nothing about like message queues and like kind of this whole family that, you know, you're working in. They don't really know much about it. And I know some people that 
they kind of live and breathe like everything they architect has a cue in it in some way, shape or form. So can you tell us kind of, you know, what kind of usage are you seeing of, of these different products? You know, you know, what yeah. can they handle? You know, what are you seeing Azure wide? Yeah. So, uh, we're really seeing that it, it, it almost doesn't matter what industry you're in anymore. It used to be like the finance industry was a big user of, of, um, service bus or, or, uh, cues and topics. Um, but now it, it really doesn't matter anymore. It's more about what kind of an architecture do you want? Um, and the, the reason I mentioned uh, the finance industry is that uh, it was actually JP Morgan uh, who came up with uh, AMQP, which is actually what our services are based upon. Um, and so that's where the original need came from. Uh, we've since adopted that. So we are uh, compliant with industry standards. Um, but Nowadays, we see a lot of customers who are doing, um, you know, inter-process or inter-server uh, messaging and communication, and that's really where messaging and, and um, things like service bus and event hubs can be of use. So it's it's more about uh, creating, you know, highly available, resilient um, workloads um, that help insulate applications um, from um, things like, uh, you know, auto load leveling. Um, you know, we generally can do availability as Microsoft better than, than a lot of our customers can. And so that's really where um, a lot of our customers start using our, our services. So what kind of scale is this thing running at? Um, it's interesting you bring that up. I have some good numbers here actually for that. So uh, these are numbers that we, we love talking about. Um, mm-hmm. So Event Hubs alone uh, is averaging roughly 3.8 trillion requests per week. Um, and so that's not, that's not messages, that's requests. So that could be, um, a message going in, but that all, sometimes you can reread messages. So, um, it'll be a request to read things off and, and to do other things like that. But yeah, 3.8 trillion requests per week for event hubs alone. That does not include service bus. Um, and all of that, the best part about that is that we're doing all those requests with an average, uh, send latency of 50 milliseconds. Okay. Wow. And that, so that's, I mean, you're, you're, you're creeping up on a trillion a day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we hope to get there. That's certainly, um, people love talking about that metric as, as certainly as, as promoters of Azure. Um, that, that's one of the main things that, that we, we do talk about. Yeah. Um, then we look at other services that we have like uh, service bus. Uh, we have more than 1.8 million queues and topics in production. Um, and that comes out to about 440 billion operations a month on service bus alone. Um, so, so that right there, will kind of give you a little bit of, of an indication as to what these services are used for. You'll notice service bus doesn't have quite the, um, quite the usage that event hubs does. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit sooner. Um, and then combined, we've got more than 80,000 namespaces and we're doing more than 28 petabytes of data per month. Um, and all of this is with, uh, more than four nines, uh, success rate. And so that, sorry, my last one here is that that all comes down to more than 6.3 million requests a second. <laughs> wow. So we'll have to, we'll have to figure out how many requests happen in the duration of the show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, so it's quite a few. What I should do, I should have like a running, I'll keep like a running tally at the, at the bottom. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> that, exactly. that would be pretty cool. I bring it into the show a couple of times. That sounds like a lot of work for me though. Um, so <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you see, so, so in, in Azure architectures, you had mentioned using like service bus queues. Um, do you see like more Azure architectures integrating that in now? Oh, you mean like other Azure services? Well, no. So, so the, whenever, you know, I, I do a lot of Azure architecture work and like designing, mm. you know, the, the, the partner, the customer says, here's what I'm, I, I have this application. It does X, Y, Z. I want to bring this over to Azure. And, you know, I think it used to be in the early days of Azure, obviously, um, you know, people, people were probably thinking a little bit more simplistic, like three tier architecture. And, and I'm, mm-hmm. I, yep. that I'm not, I'm just going to do it like the same way that I do it on prem, but I'm going to do it in the cloud. And I know I've seen more people using queues to decouple things. And it, it has that, that's been your experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, there are certainly ways to get around or, or to build solutions without things like Azure messaging involved. But but where we really provide value is that we we almost become a buffer between these services. Um, so, you know, with with our availability, we're always there to kind of host these messages um, and kind of help you um, focus your logic in a specific application. So like the good example that we always like to give is, is if you have an ordering system, you know, you have a, a say a, a front end web processor that accepts those orders. Then you have a back end processor that, that will process and fulfill those orders. Um, what's really good about service bus is if you put that in the middle, um, then 
if your back-end processor goes down for whatever reason, you're still able to accept those orders on your front-end. Um, and then there's also things you can do with uh, logic inside of that, that service bus tier that would say, you know, if an order is um, greater than 10 bucks, route it to um, this distribution center versus this one or something like that. Yeah, the the way that I always think of it is like, keeping these things safe. You know, if I get an order, I want it to be safe. I want to, mm-hmm. I don't want to lose an order. <laughs> yep, exactly. You know, of course. So, so my front end, you know, if, if something goes wrong and that, that, that point, you know, I can, I can obviously give an error message to the user or, or tell them to retry or whatever. And that they're sort of the way that I ensure that I can receive that order. But, you know, then, then I, then I create a, a message bus, um, item or message and I put it into the queue. And in my mind, what I'm doing is I'm saying this order, like I have, I'm now entrusting you with this order and that front end then can say, okay, you got this. I don't need to worry about it anymore. Even if something goes wrong after this, I know that that's safe. And then sort of from, you know, every piece of the architecture, I always think the same thing, like who's responsible for this and are they, who's responsible for making sure that this thing is safe and that it, it will handle failures and those types of things. Yeah. And so I know it sounds crazy to sound this, but you know, our, our big thing is that we don't lose messages, right? So Mm -hmm. when we accept a message from you, uh, we guarantee that we have it. And we've also, at this point, by the time we send that acknowledgement, we've replicated that message three times. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's, that's a, that's a really good point that you, you, but yeah, by the time you send the acknowledgement, you have multiple copies of that message. That's, that's great to hear. Yep. Yep. And then, and at the same time though, when you say, um, you know, complete this message, then, then we've committed that as a transaction in our log that says this message has been received by the receiver at that point too. Yeah. So, so yeah. So one of the new services that uh, I'm, I'm actually not too familiar, familiar with, but you cover is the, the relay service. What is it? Yeah. So uh, relay itself has been around for, for quite a long time. We actually, Clemens Vassers had a blog post earlier in the year that um, service bus itself is almost 10 years old now. And um, it was one of the first services on Azure. Um, and Relay is essentially um, a service that's used to get around um, complex networking configuration. So, um, you know, it'll let you get around things like firewalls and VPNs. And it's especially good for integrating, um, you know, on-prem and uh, uh, cloud applications. Um, so in the past, we had a service that, that was Azure Relay, and it was called W, uh, or, pardon me, it used the WCF uh, protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we haven't given that service a lot of love lately. And uh, so with that, we decided that we needed to make a couple changes to it, uh, one of which is that that stuff's all available in the new portal now. Um, the old service will be as well, and we've kind of renamed that to be WCF's uh, Relay, and that is essentially our legacy offering okay, for so Relay. Okay, so the old service bus Relay is now the WCF Relay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's called WCF Relay, and then our new service is called Hybrid Connections, um, and it's essentially the for the most part, the same service architecturally. However, it uses uh, WebSockets as a as a um, protocol and doesn't use WCF. And so what that does for us is it, it allows us to open that to uh, many platforms um, and let people use this in all sorts of different scenarios. So um, one uh, thing you guys might be aware of is um, Azure BizTalk Services had a service called Hybrid Connections as well. Yep. Um, Nobody else we, did, but I knew about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't too widely used, but it, it did some really cool stuff. For instance, they um, built an on-prem um, agent that you could install uh, to connect to things like SQL Server or Oracle Server, and then have uh, connect that to like an Azure website. Um, so that Azure website could then use that on-prem database for um, data, essentially. Well, that on-prem agent that the BizTalk Services team had created used um, the legacy WCF Relay service to do that. Um, so it's essentially about creating a rendezvous point in the cloud between um, you know, your new service and then your on-prem service. It, it's almost always going to deal with... Um, I don't want to say almost always, but most of the time is going to deal with a service that's on-prem somewhere. So it's it's usually hybrid yep. oriented, but um, but hybrid connections are a new service with, that uses WebSockets. Kind of opens up a couple of new use cases for that. Um, so you could see things like um, if you had uh, uh, since it's all WebSockets based, like if you had if you could do this from the browser now. So there's a lot of cool scenarios with it. Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI tools and enterprise mobility solutions. SharePlus and Report Plus enable high-performance apps on any device, faster data insights, 
simplified collaboration, and market-leading security, all backed by comprehensive support. With Infragistic's Ultimate UX and UI Development Toolkit, you can ensure mission-critical applications delivering a superior user experience on the desktop, web, and native device environments for iOS and Android. With the latest BI tools, wow your users with dashboards providing the data insights that they need when and where they need it, all at a low total cost of ownership. Try it today. Download a free trial at infragistics.com and follow them for the latest updates in UX and UI development, reporting, and collaboration at Infragistics on Twitter. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you will get a free copy of Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Toolset. Yeah, so you're you're connecting to um, uh, something that looks like a cloud or basically an internet accessible endpoint that you've created. And what that's mm-hmm. doing is it is... For the time being, I'm going to call it magic, where you're magically tunneling into an on-prem system um, without them having to open up any firewall ports. And the way that you do that, right, is by um, initiating the connection from on-prem and then piggybacking on that connection. Yeah, and that's the beautiful thing about WebSockets, right? So they make an outbound connection, and then that's a two-way connection at that point. So can push and pull data from them and then do the same with the the client that connects to it. Yeah, because in enterprise IT, like I've completely given up on ever trying to get any ports open. It just it, yep. no, it never happens. They're, they're <laughs> yeah. like lawyers, like they'd rather just do nothing because that's the safe route. Yep. Um, IT is, is the same way. So this is the way to, and, and this is a better way of doing it, right? Because instead of listening for, you know, as Clement Vassars always says, instead of listening for these unsolicited requests and having to handle that and firewall it and blah, 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 DDoS, you know, you name it. Instead, yep. it's an outbound connection, which is it, which is relatively safe connecting to that node endpoint, but we don't lose any functionality. So in the end, what you guys have built is magic is, is kind yeah. of the short version. So as long as you've got 443 open, you know, you're good to go. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 443 outbound. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Um, and yeah. then you can receive inbound connections, <laughs> which, yeah, is, which is awesome. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, Azure has all these different things. It's got uh, queues you mentioned, uh, or actually you had mentioned uh, service bus queues, but there's also storage queues, which can be confusing. Yes. Um, and yep. then there's event hubs, there's IOT hubs, <laughs> and then, and then there's the, uh, this relay uh, service that we were talking about. So how do I know which one I should be using? Sure. Um, so there's a lot of confusion around that right now, and we're trying to come up with a, um, some some good user stories for for people to better understand this. Um, storage queue, storage, the Azure storage queues um, is a pretty simple offering. I can't speak to it entirely because I don't own that service, mm-hmm. um, but it's essentially um, it's very good for. Um, like what you would use a queue in general programming for, right? Um, so it's it's pretty basic, um, and almost any scenario that will work on storage queues will also work on uh, Azure Service Bus. Um, one of the things to mention there is that they have shorter message retention, um, a maximum of seven days, um, and um, it'll. I'm not sure exactly where that team wants to go with it. Um, we've kind of been the 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 go-to uh, messaging team, so I like to say. Uh, you know why not just use service bus mm-hmm. uh, but some would all also argue that that storage queues will be cheaper yeah yeah there's there is a page and and i know like uh your your colleague dan rosenov he he's not a huge fan of the page but i think the page is useful <laughs> where it compares the storage yep. queues and the service bus queues um yeah i think i think service bus queues are kind of the more modern one the storage queues tend to be a little bit more more simple Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but I think both have, have valid places where they're used. And then what about, uh, you know, event hubs, IOT hubs, how does that all fit in? Sure. So, um, a uh, uh, big secret here, um, IOT hubs, their, their backend is essentially based on event hubs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way I think of it is that IOT hubs, uh, adds functionality to event hubs for the most part. You'll notice in some of the IOT hubs documentation, if you want to process messages that your IOT devices are sending up to that hub, you would use the event processor host, which is an event hubs, uh, tool. And we can get in more into that if you'd like. Um, but essentially what IOT hubs does is it allows for two way device communication. Um, and, uh, it also adds a, an additional layer of security on top of things. So you can do uh, better things like key management and whatnot. So event hubs is, a, is essentially a, a telemetry ingestion, uh, a telemetry and logging ingestion service. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's great for that one way communication, but we don't necessarily communicate back to those devices. So, um, if you wanted to kind of broadcast something out to your IOT devices, that's where IOT hubs would be really useful. 
Okay. And then, so you, so you said one of the pieces on that though, is like key management. So you can kind of like authorize a device to, for communication. What's kind of the, the best way to handle that, that key management right now? Um, so IOT hubs does have a, have kind of a solution for that where you can rotate those keys through. Um, I can't speak to it as an expert, um, but there are, I, I believe that they share some similar concepts that we have for, for service bus and event hubs. Um, and we allow, um, the, uh, rotating keys essentially. And so you have, um, SAS keys and then off of that, you create a SAS token and that token essentially is a, is a. You can think of it as a key that's valid for a certain period of time. Um, and so um, as these tokens exp- or before these tokens expire, these devices would then have to contact a service that you have that would say, give me a new token. And um, they could request one and it would that service would hand it out. Um, that's something that that we're looking at as potentially as a, fut- a feature um, in the future uh, where we would host that service for you or have that built in. Because right now... Um, you would have to kind of build a front-end service that would accept those requests on behalf of your devices for it for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in my mind. So, if, if if for for anybody who's listening, if you haven't, if you're building an IoT solution, um, I would start with IoT hubs, and then you get all the magic of event hubs plus all the other stuff that you're going to need. Um, and then if you have a solution like what I was talking about earlier, where I was gathering toll data and you need that conduit for high speed data, then I would use event hub. So my, the question that I get all the time, like that, that, that's one of the questions, which is IOT hubs versus event hubs. And that one, I, I've gotten really good at answering that one <laughs> and helping people. <laughs> the one that, um, that I think, I, I think I've already gotten pretty good at answering it, but, um, I kind of want to hear what your thoughts are too, like event hubs versus service bus queues, because it, it seems like there, there's kind of a Venn diagram where there's overlap, yep. there's scenarios. And, and of course I run in all these where they're like, here's my scenario. And it feels like both would, would work perfectly fine. So how do you kind of separate those two? Yeah, sure. Um, one thing you mentioned there about the the difference between event hubs and IoT hubs, and I I totally agree with that. Um, up to a certain point, I will say that we do have some customers who, um, uh, in getting started with IoT, mm-hmm. um, they've realized that they just want to send data out, mm. and they're not to the point yet where they have to worry about um, uh, two way communication or some of those advanced security features. So if you're just looking, like say uh, at home you have a Raspberry Pi that has some sensor hooked up to it, and you want to just regularly send that information up. In my mind, that's that's event hubs. I'm not doing anything yeah, too sense. crazy. Um, it's just one-way communication. I think event hubs is a good place to start there. But at the same time, um, when you're doing those more advanced solutions, IoT hubs is definitely a, yeah. a, a good thing. Um, but sorry, going back to your original question, the, the intersection between service bus and event hubs, um, that's a hard one because there really are a lot of solutions that, that could easily use both services. Um, the way I think about it is, um, with event hubs, uh, you have some sort of telemetry or logging data that you want to send up. So, um, the, the reason why is event hubs is essentially, um, a scaled down version of service bus. And what that allows us to do is to scale that solution out much better. Um, so when you're talking about volume of, of data or transactions, that's where event hubs really, really shines. It doesn't have some of the advanced features that things like service bus does, which is like, uh, um, you know, TTL, message forwarding, ordering, um, strict ordering, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's something to keep in mind when you use event hubs. If you just want to get data into the cloud um, and have some good uh, integrations um, with processing that data, event hubs is a great place to start. Like, for instance, um, there's a, a native integration that you can configure in the Azure portal using Azure Stream Analytics for Event Hubs. So if you get that data in there, you want to analyze that data in real time, um, Event Hubs will, will work really well with that. Um, the other key piece to remember is that, um, so another thing that differentiates Event Hubs is uh, messages are retained between one and seven days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a message is never deleted until that time period elapses. Um, and so what this allows you to do is to have multiple message processing streams, which is actually really kind of cool. So if you imagine, um, you know, you're, you have telemetry and logging going up, um, say you're doing um, like fraud detection, I think is a good example. You have stream analytics set up to look for patterns in your data. Um, that is one processing stream. Uh, the cool part about that is that you can have another uh, processing stream that could um, 
process that information you know in a batch basically uh, so you could do have one that's doing real-time processing and another one that's doing batch processing and you can have as many uh, almost as many streams as you want very cool that was that was great that's that's a great uh, uh, differentiation between the two Awesome. Oh, yeah. So I guess the other piece of that question I should yeah. probably answer is when you would do a service bus. Um, and so the, the <laughs> in my mind, service bus is, is great for like transactional messaging. So mm-hmm. I put a message on a queue. I take the message off the queue. Nobody processes that message anymore. Um, and then on top of that, we also have some more advanced features that would be like routing. So we have the idea of topics and subscriptions where you send a message to a topic. Um, you can evaluate a property on that message to, to, to determine which subscription it go, could go to, or you could send to all of your subscriptions and do kind of like a publish, um, a broadcast type of model. Okay, cool. So I, I've noticed in the past that when I've tried to send messages through uh, event hubs that uh, these are larger messages that they're being counted uh, internally in the Azure portal as more than one message. Yep. So, so to me, am I kind of sending the wrong kind of data or is that just a, a fact of how it is? Or is there a way to optimize kind of based around, um, you know, how we're counting messages here? Yeah. Um, so the way our pricing model works is that, uh, we charge in, in 64, uh, kilobyte, uh, chunks. So if you send 256K message, um, that essentially we boil that down to four messages. And that, that's the way things work for us for both Event Hubs and Service Bus. Um, in Event Hubs, we allow messages up to 256K. Uh, that's the same for Service Bus. However, our, our new premium, which is a dedicated uh, scale model, we allow you to send messages up to uh, a full megabyte. Um, and some of these limits are set that way because um, one, it, it's great for scale, right? The smaller the message, the better. Um, and, and it kind of simplifies those things out. Um, so for customers who send larger messages or they want to do something more than 256K or more than a meg in the case of premium, uh, we would suggest that people use what we call the claim check pattern. Um, and I think this is familiar to a lot of people, but essentially um, a good example is if you want to send an image in your message, go write that image out to Azure Storage first and include the link to that image inside of that message that you're going to send. And then when somebody processes that message, they would use the link in the message, go retrieve the, the uh, photo or the, whatever it is uh, from blob storage, and then complete that message. Um, so that's kind of the way we think about it. Um, and I hope that answered your, your question. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, I had a partner recently where they were like, you know, we're, we're going to be, most of the time we're going to be under that size. So we're good. And I'm like, well, hang on a second. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you still have to plan for those other scenarios. So they were actually going to use a hybrid approach. Essentially, if it was below a certain size, they were going to just put it in the message. Um, otherwise they basically had a different, um, a different type of message they would put in there if it was a lot, if it was something larger. So small images would sure. go right through the pipeline, larger images would use that claim check pattern. Um, yeah. and that, that actually worked out pretty, pretty well for their scenario. Yeah. And there's lots of uh, interesting things you can do around that. Like for instance, if you wanted to, to have those large mos- messages processed by a different process, you could do something with, um, you would set a property on the message and you'd have a, a queue with a, or pardon me, a topic with multiple subscriptions and that subscription would evaluate that property, um, as it's processed. And then you would have a different, um, a different route essentially for those messages to be processed. Okay. So, um, what, if I have a whole bunch of really small messages, let's say it's, uh, like time series data, it's like a timestamp and a value and a source. Um, and I have, I just have a a ton of those. What is the most efficient way for me to send up those? Um, can I just, can I put them into a batch somehow or there's semantics built in for that or what, what's the best way? Um, so you're, you're concerned about preserving the ordering of those messages, right? So uh, actually the order, you know, the ordering doesn't come up a whole lot. It, it does come up occasionally, but more, more than anything, you know, I'm, I'm primarily working with manufacturing partners. So okay. it's that, you know, it's usually sensor data and there's just so much of it. Um, imagine in, in my house, if I had, you know, 10 different, uh, temperature sensing devices and they were reading the value every second, for example, so I'd have 10 seconds or 10 values per second, which is yep. excessive for my house, but just bear with me. Um, and I, I want to make sure that those are set up efficiently. Um, I, I, I would think that if I sent up 10 messages, um, there'd probably be a lot of overhead there because there's the, the overhead of the message. I don't know. I'm just kind of wondering, like, what is an efficient um, way to send up tons of messages? Uh, well, well, first I'd say, I guess, bring it on, right? Like I think that that, that's something that we can totally handle. Uh, we do really well with volume. So our, our, uh, premium service bus offering, um, 
we have a, a, a sample out there that people can run, but running that in, a, I think it was a, uh, it was a D12 VM um, in the same data center. We were able to push about 16,000 messages a second. Yeah. Well, the, uh, I'm not worried about oh, the Azure pipe. It's the pipe at the other end. Okay. Pipe at the other end. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so certainly batching is, is an awesome thing to do. Um, sometimes we'll also see people, uh, um, you know, it's your message and we don't ever touch the data. Um, so some people also compress those messages. Okay. Um, and so that's another way to go about it I've as well. I've done that. G-zipping contents. Yeah, but certainly we do have a batching API um, that allow you to send a batch of messages. Okay. And then what happens when it is in a batch? Is it, I mean, does it, what is actually going on there? I guess one thing we should probably talk about first is that, you know, so you support uh, sending via HTTP or AMQP, AMQP yep. being a binary protocol. So if I'm batching, like what, what does that actually look like? What does that do yeah. for me? So batching um, for the most part, regardless of the protocol, uh, what'll happen is because uh, AMQP itself doesn't, doesn't support batching exactly. But what we do is we will take that message on our, on our client APIs, um, and we will uh, take the contents of all those messages, serialize them up, and then pass them as a single message. Okay. Um, up until you hit that that size limit, whether it be 256k or one meg. Um, regarding the protocols, um, so technically speaking, uh, we have uh, two. Uh, um, protocols that we support mm-hmm. on top of two different transports. Um, so the first of which, I, pardon me, we have three protocols <laughs> that we support <laughs> on top of two different pr- transports. Um, the first one is service bus messaging protocol, we call. Mm-hmm. And um, that is something that was developed by our team uh, back when the service was created. Uh, we've since kind of have jumped on the AMQP bandwagon. And um, that is going to be the primary protocol for all of our new clients um, and certainly going to be what we push in the future. Um, so you'll see less and less of that as we move on. Then we have HTTP. HTTP is great if you want to do things like um, doing this from the browser or um, from other clients that don't have a native um, uh, transport mechanism built in. Um, And then we also have um, AMQP, which I mentioned. Um, And both uh, AMQP and service bus messaging protocol will run on top of HTTP or uh, TCP. And the way they run on top of HTTP is through the use of actually WebSockets. Okay. So that's how we do things in the background. Man, that might have been way too technical. But. <laughs> no, I think I, I definitely think some of our listeners will be interested in that for sure. Yeah. So I, a lot of times when you know I have an application that's utilizing uh, you know one of these communication techniques, I occasionally need to send a file to Azure as well. Is this something that uh, we can do today? Uh, sorry, you're talking about sending a file, like as in through like Azure Storage, or or. So if I have a file, kind of, um, I guess it's a leading question because I know that IoT hubs can, uh, you can, there's a send file yeah, method have, on there. Yeah, a special method, yeah, for that. Gotcha, gotcha. We do not have a special method for that. So, okay. so all we all we care about is messages. So if you if it's a file that you can serialize into a message, either through something that's serializable or a stream. Uh, we can take it up until those size limits kick in. Yeah. So, so pretty much you're stuck with the the claim check pattern. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is fine because you know then you have the nice you know so Carl I think what you have to do is you have to use the storage semantics to um, you know get that file in there safely once once that's been committed to storage then you have a pointer to that and then you can send that over as a message. So um, this is kind of a, a, a wide ranging question, but but for somebody who's not using a queue today. Or maybe yeah, they've never touched a queue. What are they missing? Uh, sure. So, <laughs> so I think we we kind of briefly touched on some of these, yeah. but essentially they're 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 missing out on availability. I think we go back to that example of of processing orders. Um, if you were to get, you know, if you didn't have a service bus or some sort of sort of middle tier in there, if um, your backend couldn't keep up with with the number of orders you were receiving, um, you know, that's, that's obviously a problem, right? (laughs) Right. Awesome problem to have, but it, it does happen. Right. So, um, that's another thing that, that queues and and other messaging systems provide is that, that buffer between those scenarios and they essentially insulate applications from one another. Um, the other nice piece of that is that, um, by adding that, that middle point, um, your other surrounding applications become independently scalable. So, so that front end, I can scale independently from that back end because I'm not doing that processing inside of the same, same application or necessarily on the same servers. Um, and then, as I mentioned, with that availability also comes, uh, 
you know, almost automatically uh, load balance solutions as well. Okay. Yeah. I mean, those are, those are great enough reasons. Yeah. I think there's a bunch more I'm missing that all my teammates are going to tell me. <laughs> they're, all, they're all screaming right now. Like, <laughs> yeah, come right. on, John. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yeah, yep. yeah. Yeah. No, I, I tend, I think you probably do this too. I, I tend to think Q first, you know, again, because of that, that safety. Yep. Um, so, you know, I, I would, if you haven't used queues before and you're working on an architecture, I would, I would, I would at the very least ask yourself, okay, if I were to connect these two pieces with a queue, like what, what would that do to this? What would that do to this architecture? Does that help me? Is that going to make things, you know, overly complicated? Uh, and then, and then really think about what happens when each of these things fails. Um, and, and I think a queue is really the answer to what happens when this thing fails, uh, because mm-hmm. that's, that's what, again, is going to keep your, keep your precious data, your precious order safe throughout that process. Yeah, exactly. And, and since we, since we talked about it quite a bit at the beginning of the show, uh, what's the best way that I can use a queue or maybe an event hub with Azure functions? Um, yeah, so it's kind of awesome to see, but there are more uh, integrations with other Azure services for both Service Bus and um, Event Hubs. Um, and so you'll see uh, triggers for both uh, Service Bus and Event Hubs for mm-hmm. functions. So you'd essentially have a message on a queue or an Event Hub that would trigger an Azure function. Um, and so we talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, say you want to do some sort of message manipulation uh kind of while your message is in flight. Um, uh, one such example I can think of off the top of my head is if this is kind of going back there, but if you say you had an EDI message and your uh, your uh, consumers doesn't, doesn't deal with EDI and wants JSON or something like that, you could essentially pass that message onto either an event hub or a service bus, have it trigger an Azure function that would do that, handle that conversion for you, and then... Uh, output that message to another queue, to another topic or another event hub. And that consumer could then consume that type of Yeah, because you can message. do, I mean, you can do anything in an Azure function. I mean, I think, yeah. I think Azure functions really open up the event hub stuff. And then the fact that event hubs are just like your perfect conduit for talking between things. Yeah. Um, it just works. It, it just works amazingly well because I can have something triggered either with a message or with a function and then I can just keep going. I can keep flipping back and forth. I get a, I get an HTTP call. Um, I can make an order message. I can then yep. have an order processor function that automatically spins up whenever it sees a, a message yep. in there. It automatically scale to that. Maybe it goes and it saves something into the database. Uh, and then it also puts another message into a, a, a di- you know, into a queue or whatever. And, and honestly, like use, using event hubs from an Azure function is like the easiest way to use event hubs in, in, at least in my experience, it's just mm-hmm. totally, yeah, it's, it's so incredibly easy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great thing. We're seeing more and more customers use that kind of stuff. And it, it, it certainly follows the, the microservices architecture yeah. um, and it makes it really easy. And, and um, when I think about like all the, the, the home projects that I want to work on um, you know, Azure functions is a no brainer for that kind of stuff. And then yeah. when you add these types of triggers and outputs on top of it, it becomes so much easier. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think, I think Azure functions are cool. Event hubs are cool. And, and having both together, it, it just sort of has this multiplying effect on the, on the things sure. that you can do, um, at, at crazy high scales. But again, yep. you're creating like a, almost like a micro microservice, yep. uh, but at scale, which just gets me excited. Anyway, yeah. um, any cool upcoming features that you, uh, are able to and, and want to talk about? Sure. Um, yeah. So for both of our, actually for all of our services, um, we are looking to implement a GODR feature. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially what this would do is it would replicate your entities between data centers um, and give you one uh, common namespace to talk to. Um, so that's a really cool feature. Um, I think uh, we don't have a, a GOHA of a story today, uh, but I think this this might lead the path uh, towards that, um, that's something a lot of cus- our customers have concern about, especially those that are that are in um, industries such as finance or insurance. Um, they're very concerned about um, being able to operate all the time. Um, it doesn't happen often, but it does happen where things go down in certain data centers. Um, and so this will be a, a, a nice feature that'll um, help with that. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention. Um, is uh, we have so before sorry. before you do, I just want to unravel those acronyms. That's DR and HA, disaster <laughs> yeah. recovery and high availability. Yes. Correct? So right. yes. So disaster recovery to me is um, 
how long is it before I can be up and running again in the event of a disaster? Um, and in this case, we would determine a disaster is um, the first one being an Azure data center goes down. Um, so what do you do there? Um, and we would essentially give you a trigger to hit that would flip from one namespace to the other. Um, and for customers who use um, lots of entities, say they create a queue or a topic for this, um, and even delete them during during runtime, we would make sure that those things are properly copied over to the other namespace. Um, though the caveat to that is that even though those entities are, themselves are copied, um, the data within them is not copied. Um, so at this point, you still have to be concerned with uh, processing those messages off of the original namespace. Um, and the reason why we don't uh, uh, we haven't figured out a good way to copy those over for you automatically. Um, and uh, we don't flip it back to that original namespace uh, without you telling us to because we don't want to take personal liberties when talking about your data. We want you to process that because we don't know necessarily what's best. Okay. Um, yeah, so the other features are the other things I wanted to talk about. Uh, we do have new open source clients um, for most of our services, actually. We've been very busy in the last couple of months. Awesome. So um, Event Hubs has a new uh, .NET standard uh, Java library. Um, uh, Hybrid Connections has a .NET standard and Node library. Mm -hmm. There will be a Java library by GA, which should be sometime in January, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we also have, um, be on the lookout here in a couple of weeks for a .NET standard and Java library for uh, service bus messaging queues and topics. Okay, um, very exciting stuff. Yeah, so these are all things that are, we're really excited about, especially because these will become our new, the .NET standard libraries will become our new preferred library. So the full .NET framework libraries that we have today, um, those will someday um, go away in favor of these new libraries. And we're hoping to, to fix a couple mistakes that we made in the, the first set of libraries and make things a little bit simpler for customers. Okay, cool. And then one thing we didn't talk about was uh, a recent feature, which was Event Hub's archive uh, archiving. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Yeah, sure. So Event Hub's archive is, is probably one of the features we should have had from the start. <laughs> um, it is essentially a way for you to automatically um, write your messages from Event Hubs into Azure Storage. Um, and so instead of uh, using your own service to process the messages out of an Event Hub and write them into storage, uh, we'll now do that for you. Um, and so it, it's a great way to, to for those of us who, who like to keep data forever, um, it's a great way to do that. Okay, that's very cool. Very cool. Um, anything else that you wanted to mention? I think uh, uh, it seems like we covered it, but anything else yeah. that you're just dying to no, say? I think we pretty much covered it. Okay. That sounds great. Carl, uh, looks like you picked an Azure pick of the week this week. Yeah. Um, I got this from a friend of ours, Kenny Young. Uh, he uh, pointed out there's a, a single page where you can get uh, what most of all the Azure services are. Mm -hmm. Kind of all on one page. It's pretty clean. It's azureplatform.azurewebsites.net. And it it has them grouped into little nice boxes. And if you click on them, they kind of expand and give you kind of just a quick paragraph of, you know, what they're about. But they also have links on, you know, the overview to get to their actual pages and yep. documentation and pricing and SLAs and all of the documentation that you'd want to get to. So it's one, a nice quick overview to see what's all out there. Um you know, things that are new, but if you want to dig into them, it's a, it's a actually a really nice resource to uh, find out more information about them as well. Yep. I've been using that for quite a while with uh, partners and customers that are trying to learn about all the different Azure services. Cause there's so many of them now. Um, this is just a, it's a huge help uh, of course. Okay. What do you got for the life-changing dev tip of the week? <laughs> yeah. So this one actually, I, I can't remember who gave it to me first, but I saw this on Twitter. It just kind of blew up. So if you ever go to your downloads folder and it just sits there and takes forever. Mm -hmm. um, and, and some people said like, oh, this never happens. I've had it on a brand new paved machine where I've only downloaded like Chrome. And that's the only yeah. thing sitting I think there. The right? only I'm, time it, yeah, the only time it might not happen is if you like have... We, so you're saying just one item in there? Because I've seen I, I, it I mean, with a with a handful of items, but wow, even one item. Okay, so that's crazy. It sucks. So sometimes it goes <laughs> fast, yeah. but a lot of times you'll sit there and it just like sucks. You're, you're like, okay, um, there is a way to disable kind of that whatever processing is going on there. If you actually right click on the downloads folder and go to properties, um, there's a, there's a tab on there that'll let you, uh, kind of optimize for, and by default it says pictures, but if you just say general items, that is, it just launches immediately. It has everything. It doesn't even, 
you know, you don't see a bar or anything. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I've even seen it in the past trigger. Like if you like resort it like by name or date, it'll like re-trigger this oh, whole process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and now it's, so, so I, I applied your, your change here. And I mean, it's, everything is just instant in that folder. As it should be. So it was trying, so basically it was trying to interpret every file as an image, huh? Um, and trying to come something. up with a, a, some I, kind of preview for it. It's just crazy. But this, uh, this, this will just, this will fix that entire slowness and you're probably giving something up that nobody uses anyway. So it's totally worth it for, for you to apply this. Um, and then I just wanted to, add, I added it in kind of a last minute dev tip of the week. That's not as life changing as the one that the Carl had there, but um, I did want to mention, cause John, we didn't mention this was, uh, or I think you might've mentioned it really quick was the service bus explorer. Um, yeah. And, and I, you might be aware of another tool, but I use this thing all the time for uh, you know, it'll, you can actually see what's going on in your, your service bus queues topics. And then you can also monitor the data that's coming through event hub. So it's really helpful at development time for um, sort of visualizing what is going on. Um, so there's, it, there's source code out there. You download it and you basically compile it in visual studio. And I always keep a copy of the X's around, um, so that I can use this, but this tool is incredibly useful. Is, is there any, yeah. are there any other tools like this or, or is this the one? Um, so we have been talking about trying to build some of that functionality into the Azure portal, um, okay. to make things a little bit easier for our yeah. users. Um, right now our default go-to is uh, service bus Explorer. However, um, there is a new, um, it's a hosted service out there and I haven't played with it too much yet, but it comes from uh, the people at BizTalk 360 and it's called Service Bus 360. And um, it has a lot of uh, similar functionality to Service Bus Explorer, but it's great for um, additional ongoing monitoring that uh, we don't provide today. Okay. Very cool. And I can give you a link to that. Okay. Yep. We'll put that in the show notes. Okay, John, I need you to pick a number between one and four. Uh, three. Three. Okay, would you rather be stuck on an island for two years with 20 friends of your choice or be stuck on an island for two years with 20 famous people of your choice? 20 friends for sure. 20 friends of your choice. I don't have 20 friends. <laughs> Does that mean I get yeah. less or can I or can I have like half and half? 10 celebrities? 20 people half? you like. <laughs> I don't know, I feel like you'd get to know those celebrities and, and it might not go so well. Yeah, I, they're, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm not gonna say anything. Uh, Carl, what would what, would you pick? You pick the friends. Yeah. Well, your friends are celebrities, though. Uh, okay, Carl. Only you, Jason. Pick a number between one and four. I'll take one. One. Okay. Would you rather be in a deep lake five miles from shore in a rowboat with a? I think we might have this one with a rowboat with a slight but steady leak, or be in a hot air balloon one mile high with a slight but steady leak? In fact, I'm. A I will take the this. rowboat. Yeah. The rowboat. Yeah. Yeah, because I can't fly, but I can swim. And I can bail. I, I can't blow out that much hot air. <laughs> 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 this episode of the MS Dev Show brought to you from Carl in a air, hot air balloon. <laughs> we will ask Carl lots of questions so that he can stay afloat. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Okay, so John, uh, where can people find you and find more information about Service Bus? Sure. So probably the easiest place is uh, on Twitter. I'm at J Taubensee and that's uh, J-T-A-U-B as in boy, E-N-S-E-E. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I will send in links for uh, the MSDN blogs for both Event Hubs and Service Bus. Perfect. And uh, Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me at YTechie.com or on Twitter at Twitter.com slash YTechie. So, John, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about Service Bus and Relay and Event Hubs and IoT Hub and all that good stuff. It's very cool. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, guys. 